Matt Laswitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big board, creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, what's going on? Oh, it's, it's been a weird week. We're recording the show on a Saturday because I had to go off and fuck up my schedule. I missed my running buddies. I missed my podcast buddy. Uh, it's been weird, discombobulated time, but we're here during the day. We got some stories to read. You're you're out on location somewhere, uh, undisclosed location. I am out in the deep woods of central Pennsylvania. Mm. Pray for me. <laughs> Pray for the city boy in the rustic cottage. <laughs> but you know what it has air conditioning and i was able to you know get a wi-fi hub out of the library check your local libraries folks if you need to travel with wi-fi it's amazing the things they have these days and we're here and we're, we're recording yes we are having a show we are this week um we're picking up three series runs or events that we've already started with the next arc of grant morrison's run on batman no man's land and Injustice, God's Among Us. We'll start out with some Morrison, with The Three Ghosts of Batman. This is Batman Volume 1, numbers 664 to 665. Written by Grant Morrison, with pencils by Andy Kubert, inks by Jesse Delperdang, colors by Guy Major, lettered by Jared K. Fletcher, edited by Elizabeth V. Gerlein and Pete Tomasi. Cover date are May and June of 2007. As Batman and Jezebel Jet grow closer, a new threat emerges in Gotham, a conspiracy involving the police and a hulking, drug-fueled faux Batman. Is there a connection between these two things? And what does it all have to do with the Black Casebook? To kind of get us a bit of grounding here, this is published right after Clown at Midnight. So the Morrison run did... The four issues of Batman and Son, then was off for four issues and had a fill-in, then came back for Clown at Midnight, and then this two-parter, which seemingly picks up right after the end of Batman and Son, as it opens with Batman in Gibraltar with a bunch of ninja man-bats unconscious all over the place. And we go right from Bruce at Gibraltar with all the unconscious ninja man-bats into a scene pretty much right out of... James Bond? Okay, that was just what I was trying to figure out. I was trying at, to remember the the Bond movie where it starts with like this the skiing scene. Like it's literally like skiing, uh parachuting and my first thought was world is not enough. No, it's I think it's a more or a Dalton and maybe it is a more, but because I remember like the uh, the Union Jack parachute. It might be a view to a kill. This is view to a kill being the best worst uh, Bond movie. Shockingly, there are a lot of Bond movies that have skiing scenes. The Spy Who Loved Me, perhaps. Well, yeah, we're we're going off on a tangent here, folks. But you know, bear with us. So I, I found a listicle of all of the Bond movies with skiing scenes. And there's The Living Daylights. Dalton. View to a, okay, View to a Kill. 
I think I was right. Yeah, yeah, there it is. Yep. Or, or the world is not the world is not enough has a ski scene too. I think you're thinking you're right. You're thinking of world is not enough. I'm thinking of you to a kill. We're both right. For your eyes only. That's the one I'm thinking of. Because for your eyes only has him parachuting with the Union Jack parachute. Bond squares off against some Soviet bloc Olympic by Athlon hopefuls and winds up skiing off a high jump and lunch table in the Italian Alps. That's the one I'm thinking of. Anyway, to, but, to bring it back, I, because look, I, I love talking Bond as much as the next guy. Uh, that's maybe our third Patreon uh, bonus episode when we hit uh, 100 subscribers. Uh, because remember, when we hit 20, we're doing Star Trek. When we hit 50, we're doing Ernest. And I think now when we hit 100, we're going to rank all the Bond movies. That would but be a yeah. series. We'd have to do that over a few because that's, <laughs> that's a lot of movies. This opening to 664, 665 is so disorienting because it's basically Bond homage. But then there's like a, like a taste of parody because they make a Bond reference on the page. So I'm just like, what the fuck are you doing here? I don't, I don't understand. Like, uh, I I can't, I can't figure out what's happening here, Uh, but yeah, it's so, it's so bond. It's, it's jet setting. It's this, the ski jump. It's this lovely lady and her bodyguards and this era mystery. And then she says to him, you're cool. Like James Bond. So I can't figure out whether it's a mockery of bond or whether it's pointing out that Wayne is like bond or i i just i i don't know i don't know matt i was very confused with this and he pulls a sheer like almost bond move with taking the ski pole and taking out this like helicoptery like whirly bird thing which kind of like wait would bruce wayne do that isn't that kind of a giveaway but and of course it turns out to not be an assassin but is instead just a paparazzo, which is still kind of great that he does it. I mean, it's a cool, visually a very cool scene, but it seemed a little bit like Bruce stepping out of character for a moment. Yeah, yeah. And and I swear to God, some other Bond ski scene had these little mini helicopters. God, this was, oh, this was so much for my brain to have to try to figure out. And we go almost immediately from this very light scene between Bruce and Jezebel Jett, the, that initial scene is like, then it's a little bit heavier when they're out to dinner and she's talking about her assassinated father and how she can understand where he's coming from with the death of his parents to some seriously gritty Gotham Street stuff. That maybe hasn't aged well. Oh, no. (laughs) No. There is some good in it. I like that this directly contradicts, I don't think intentionally, but directly contradicts a bit in one of the Brubaker stories where Selena figures that Bruce isn't going to care about the girls on the street and so has to take care of this herself. 
Where here, Bruce very much knows the names of the sex workers. He offers the youngest one a job at Wayne Tech. And she will come back repeatedly over the course of Morrison's run. Uh, They don't forget her as a character. I'll say this for two of our more in-universe stories this week. They both have very grounded stakes. Like, there is a lot going on with No Man's Land, admittedly. But the core of that story, the MacGuffin, as it were, is a bunch of firearms. In this story, the you know the basic nugget of it, even as we're we're jet setting across the globe, is sex workers turning up missing, and and I really like these grounded stakes. I don't like stories that are uh, oh we're got a new space laser coming into Gotham and the penguins trying to hijack it or something like that. Just basic detective stories. The part here that is really aged poorly is the golf theme pimp that guy is about as stereotypical a pimp as you can get except instead of a cane he's got a golf club yeah and he the, the dialect that he speaks in is not good no it's one of these cases of do i think morrison was intentionally doing something terrible no but they're human, and this seemed okay in 2007, as that was a well-known trope. But now, looking back on it, not good. And, and this, this is skipping ahead, but there's like a similar beat in, um, in No Man's Land, where they're talking about prostitutes addicted to crack I'm like yes. this is this is a little awkward um and maybe it's a good reason why the batman just came up with drops as a drug true i mean at least in no man's land it's one panel this guy is there for like three pages or more. yeah he's there for a while i mean the the girls are also dressed fairly the women and ellie is a girl ellie is I don't know how old Ellie is supposed to be, but she does not look terribly like she's been out of high school for long, if that. Roxy, who Bruce absolutely knows, seems to be someone who's been in the life for some time. But it's Ellie who comes back over and over again in this run. Question for you. Had Gotham's zip code ever been established before this issue? Not that I remember. I do not remember having seen that before. Because clearly they got 666 on the brain with that coming up. And I, that's, a, that's a nice little touch. Yes. Yes. And we will be covering that issue in a not too distant future episode involving alternate universe takes on Damien. Because that is a flash forward to a possible Damien future one-off. But we go to Bruce searching for the person who's made these sex workers disappear. And what we wind up with is this sort of hulking, monstrous Bane-Batman hybrid who the cops have been basically feeding women to not literally he doesn't seem to be eating them but he's killing them and the police are somehow involved in keeping him 
from going out into the streets and rampaging by providing him with prostitutes who he murders. Not a great look for the GCPD. Uh, No, not at all. Let me ask you a question. Would it be fair to say that Grant Morrison hates exposition? I wouldn't say in everything they do, but when Morrison is leaning into the big widescreen operatic superhero stuff, they tend to let the art do a lot of the talking. That was the sense that I got reading this. Like you more succinctly laid out the core plot here than I think we get in any other spot in these issues. And it's, it's such a delicate balance, right? I don't like when a story spells out everything on the page in four or five paragraphs, but I don't like having to guess or I don't like having to piece so much of it together. I think as, in terms of my preferences, this story is too little uh, exposition. Whereas, I don't know, maybe as we'll see later, maybe Injustice leans too much into the exposition, but I don't know. That's probably my my central problem with this. It hurts poor Will's brain too much, having to think too hard. This story is also sort of bridging a gap. This isn't a major arc in Morrison's run. This is after your Batman and Son, your Clown at Midnight, then you get this, you get the one-off, and then we go into Club of Heroes, which is the next major arc in the Morrison run. And after that, we again get a few smaller arcs before RIP. And there's a, a crossover with the other bad titles in the middle there. This one was there to set pieces in place, to establish the three Batmen, to establish that this conspiracy, that someone was building these faux Batmen. And now we've seen two of the three, and the third will become important later on and the hints of the demon Batman of the future that will be Damien or a a possible future Damien. But again, I know that because I've read this entire arc, this entire series. So in 664, we get the Bane Bat. Uh, Where's where's the other one that you reference? He's the one who shot the Joker at the beginning Ah. of Batman and Son. So that was the first of the three Batman, a gun-wielding Batman. Then we have the drug-addicted Batman here. And then the third will show up eventually. He's a character who actually becomes pretty integral to some other Batman stuff that goes on. The character name is Michael Lane. He becomes a Latter-day Azrael as well for a brief span. None of them are particularly major characters. Michael Lane gets more play when other writers take him over in the Azrael ongoing. So what you're saying is they, uh, they didn't quite make any of them happen. Like Batman who laughs happened. No. Also within this series, we start getting other hints of other stuff that Morrison is setting up specifically the talk of the black case book, which I think is a really cool idea that they put in here that Morrison's whole thesis is that every Batman story happened, even those really crazy outlandish ones from the 50s and early 60s. And those are the stories in the Black Casebook, the stories that make no sense, the stories that Batman himself can't figure out. So he put them into this very specific Silver Agey thing. And Alfred, I mean, he has a line in here about 
probably due to exposure to too much fear toxin and laughing gas. Ah, what a great anthology that would be. Batman, the Black Case book. I'd read that book. Just do weird science fiction, horror stories. You don't Uh, have to really play with continuity because it could be completely, you know, fictional and drug induced or whatever. But there could always be that little kernel of, well, did this really happen? DC editorial, if you're listening, let's do it. And that's where he talks about the Batman, talks about the the vision he had of the three, the the gun-toting killer, the bestial giant on drugs, and the one who sold his soul to the devil. We'll see some Black casebook stories as Morrison's run continues, and they create mirrors of some of the classic late golden, early silver age stories as part of the Black casebook. But I feel like this particular story was just there to lay some groundwork for the the bigger stories later. You get some really cool Batman. You get the skiing scene. You get Batman fighting the giant. You get him saving Tim Drake by ejecting from the Batmobile, which is pretty cool. I would love to ask Morrison what they feel about Tim Drake. Because I never get the impression that Morrison has any love for Tim Drake. Tim here is kind of petulant and it makes sense. You know, he just had the shit kicked out of him by a 10 year old. And so he feels like he has something to prove. And he was just adopted officially and legally by Bruce as his biological son comes up. So the beats are there. The logic as to why Tim is acting the way he does is there but he comes off not too great, a little more headstrong, a little more Jason Todd than we normally get out of Tim. Specifically acting like he has something to prove. Right. Like, I'm, I'm going to go after this, this new big bad. Who wailed on Batman. And Tim himself would almost regularly be the first to admit he's not the fighter of the Robins. Tim's the detective Robin. He's good. I mean, he's a member of the Bat family. He's, he's a good martial artist, but he's not Dick. He's not as capable in the field as Dick. He can still beat the hell out of, you know, me or pretty much anybody on the Gotham streets. But if this guy took out Batman, it means that Tim would have to be much more careful than he is in this scene. I mean, yes, he does start out by hitting the guy with a motorcycle, but still. As, as opening salvos go, that's not a bad one. No, not at all. It especially, to me, feels like a setup of other things because the way the story ends is with three, you know, three almost epilogues Mm -hmm. that are all very clearly setting other things up. Bruce meeting with Jim Gordon and them not being sure who is leaning on the mayor to lean on him to get him to back off the investigation of the two Batmen that they have found, Talia bringing Damien back to her base to get him healed up. Organ replacement, stat. Yep. And then Bruce having another date with Jezebel Jett and somebody watching them. This whole story was to move pieces into place for everything that's coming. And you can get a story like that and it can work. And this isn't a bad story. But, no, not at all. But it feels like it's mostly there just to 
make the table settings before the real meal. One interesting thing that I'd like to explore, I'd like to ask Grant Morrison, you know, they've come out publicly as obviously non-binary and there's this specific scene where Batman is rubbing testosterone on him or what he believes to be a testosterone, a testosterone scent. And I'd, I'd love to pick their brain about that now. Masculinity and Batman's role in it and all of that kind of stuff. Morrison is the person who coined the phrase hairy chested love God in regard to the Neil Adams Batman who you know, f- fights Ra's al Ghul without his shirt with all the chest hair. So Morrison definitely has thoughts about Batman and masculinity. I don't think they view Batman as toxically masculine, but I think they have a very strong feeling about how masculinity plays in to the Batman mythos. Yeah, again, where Batman is rubbing what he believes to be testosterone on himself, that's, that's, that's not really subtext anymore. <laughs> No. I mean, what Batman's talking about, you know, this hulking bat guy being, you know, an alpha hunter, an alpha male, and the only thing that they would really respect, alpha plus. Alpha plus. <laughs> Which absolutely sounds like a type of Axe body spray. Alpha plus. Or, or a fake dick pill. Also possible. Uh, this episode of Bat Chat is uh, supported by Alpha Male Plus. Uh, I, th- I, th- I think on that note, <laughs> <laughs> that means it's time to put Batman 664, 665 on the big board. All right. We are at 141 stories on the big board. Uh, number one is Batman Year One from Batman Volume One, numbers 404 to 407. Number 25 is Cheer from Batman Urban Legends, number one to six. Number 50 is Blood Secrets from Detective Comics Annual, number two. And coming in at number 69, Superman Annual, number three, Armageddon 2001. Nice. Number 75 is The Secret of the Waiting Graves. Number 100, The Batman and Son, original graphic novel. 125, Batman, Master of the Future, the sequel to Gotham by Gaslight. And way down at the bottom, Batman White Knights. All the way at the bottom because it's a pile of shit. Let's start. And this is one where I do not know why Club of Heroes is down at 101. I feel like Club of Heroes is, for me, was better than that. But I guess 101 is not all that far down when we're at 141 at this point. It's still well above the, the really bad range of things do you I think do th- no no you go ahead no i was gonna say do you think this is better or worse than club of heroes i was looking at clown at midnight at 85 and this is not to answer your question but it was going to answer my question i think this has to go below clown at midnight because I- clown at midnight is just so so out there and weird and bold and doesn't always work but is incredibly brave uh this yeah as you said it has some interesting beats but so much of it feels recycled so much of it feels like it's setting other stuff up that i don't know if i if i had to choose this is always a good question we ask ourselves which thing am i going to reread i would pick up clown at midnight before i would pick this up 
I agree. I, I was going, if you had said you thought this was above Club of Heroes, the next thing I would have said was, do you think it goes above Clown at Midnight? Because I know for a fact, I don't feel like it goes above Clown at Midnight. I don't think it goes above Club of Heroes. I like Club of Heroes more. I think it's a bit wilder. It's a bit hokier. It's a bit more Silver Age, but it has that gorgeous J.H. Williams art. And, and the art here is not bad. No. Um, no we're we're going to talk about some bad art tonight. Oh, yeah. But uh, this, is, this is perfectly, feels like, you know, house style as of the time, state of the art, as it were. Absolutely. Nothing and, fancy, gets the job done. Yeah, Andy Kubert is a very good superhero artist. And this is a very competently done, beyond competent, it's well done superhero comic. It's just not J.H. Williams who takes everything to the next level. I don't think it goes above Club of Heroes. I think it's not too far below Club of Heroes, though. No, because after Club of Heroes comes some stuff that either didn't work or has got some serious trouble with it. Like, we've got Azarello's Joker at 112... Uh, right below Club of Heroes is Death in the Family. And I think Death in the... I would sooner reread Death in the Family as bizarre as Death in the Family is. Directly below that are two trifles, Luther, You're Driving Me Sane, and The Little Red Book from Batman Adventures. And then you get Shaman, which, while generally good, has some real problematic elements in its treatment of Native indigenous peoples and of Caribbean islands and the peoples who live there. So, and just, just Batman not being a dick. And also has uh, the only principal character of color being murdered indiscriminately with little recognition of the fact. So I think we're, we're closing in on it there. I think we're probably above Shaman probably above Little Red Book because that was just sort of there, the Rupert Thorne Batman Adventures. What about in relation to jo- uh, Luthor You're Driving Me Sane, the Joker Lex Luthor issue of Joker? I, I think we've hit it. I think we've hit the, the sweet spot. I, I don't want to put this above Luthor You're Driving Me Sane. Yeah, Luthor You're Driving Me Sane is a ton of fun. And I think it's a book that Grant Morrison would appreciate for its sheer balls to the walls. Well, that's nuts. I think they would. And I think they'd be up for redoing it. Yeah, that would be a black casebook story if there ever was one. Okay. Our next story is Fear of Faith. This is from Batman Legends of the Dark Knight, number 116. Batman Shadow of the Bat, number 84. Batman Volume 1, number 564, and Detective Comics, number 731. The writer is Devin Grayson, pencils by Dale Eaglesham, inks by Aaron Saud and Matt Banning, Sean Parsons, and Jamie Mendoza, colors by Pamela Rambo, Noel Giddings, and Digital Chameleon, lettered by Todd Klein. The editors are Denny O'Neill, Darren Vincenzo, and Joseph Illage. Cover dates are April of 1999. One of the few safe places in the no man's land, the Ark Project, is a cathedral run by the noble Father Christian. But forces are beginning to circle Ark, including defectors from Black Mask's gang, the Penguin, the Huntress, the GCPD, and most sinister of all, the Scarecrow. As these forces grow closer to collision, 
Batman is drawn in to try to save a little glimmer of hope among all the terror. As always, Matt, fucking great at writing those summaries. Thank you, brother. So this is arc two of No Man's Land. This is, again, a four-part arc. After this, the arcs will grow shorter. There's going to be lots of twos and ones. There will be a few more larger four-parters, but moving through No Man's Land, the arcs get a little looser than after those first two months of four-part stories. We're picking up pretty much right on the heels of No Law and New Order. Bruce is still settling in. Bruce is just starting to tag. And this, like No Law and New Order, is not a story where Batman is the central figure. This is not a story where Batman appears a whole lot. He's a little bit in each issue, but this is much more about Father Christian, the Huntress, and the Scarecrow than it is about Batman. And as I said earlier, it's a real simple story. The setup for No Man's Land is fairly fantastic. You know, the, the idea of the rest of the country just abandoning Gotham City to, to its own devices and, and that sort of thing, that's, that's a bit out there. But at its core, this thing is manipulation. This thing is what you will do when pushed to absolutely choosing between two terrible options and hoping for the best and having that hope dashed and destroyed. It's very relatable, even as it's got these more fantastic elements to it. I really enjoyed the core story here, even as we might talk about the execution and and some of the directions, but I, this was, this was a good read. Yeah. This is our first story by Devin Grayson, who wrote a lot of Batman in the late nineties and early aughts. And while I can take or leave some of her other work, I'm wrong. Devin Grayson wrote parts of war games. Devin Grayson wrote the Nightwing parts of war games. That was during her run on Nightwing, her run on Nightwing, especially I can take or leave this story and some of the stuff she does in Gotham Knights after is is pretty solid. I like the fact that we are at a point where Scarecrow, he's in no man's land. So he doesn't have access to all of his crazy fear chemicals. So instead he just goes about basically using a whisper campaign and some gaslighting to try to do a social experiment which is well within Crane's wheelhouse as a psychology professor. It's really fascinating why somebody at some point in the story just doesn't beat him up and stick him into a locker. That, that costume really does work for you. I will say the Scarecrow's narration in this is a bit much. Yeah, maybe even visually a bit much. I figured the lettering on that was going to drive you a bit nuts. You know, I didn't hate it as much as I usually do, but it, it wears on you. I'll say that. And it's just there's these constant philosophizing speeches about fear and mortality and hope and the destruction of hope and him just reveling in his own crapulence. He, he's pretty awful. And, and not in a, you know, awful character, but he's he's... A, really at his most cruel in this book. 
because he's really just trying to bring down this bastion of hope in the no man's land to prove that fear is more powerful than hope. Yeah, it in many ways, it, it feels more like a Joker story, at least in the, the sort of psychological manipulation we saw in The Dark Knight, for example. But it's it's Crane as a master manipulator without the gas, just pushing people's buttons in the right way, selective misinformation and disinformation and lying to people and turning people against each other. Again, I... I I thought it was relatable. And we saw him do something similar in Fear State, where at the beginning, where he's just setting up those scarecrow dummies to get people to panic. He doesn't always need the fear gas. But I think, as I said in the synopsis, this is a lot of different factions circling the ARC project. And I mean, we should probably start out. I mean, Father Christian, the priest who set up the ARC project, is one of those characters that is noble to a fault. Intentionally so. I mean, that's how he's written. He's written to have such faith in people that he almost brings about his own downfall by trusting everyone to have a better nature. Trusting the scarecrow. Right. I mean, it works when it comes to Mikey, the uh, former false facer who wants to be a better person. And it makes sense there. But... Crane is still running around in his costume. It's not like he's Jonathan Crane hanging out in this cathedral. No, he's flat out the Scarecrow. Uh, And as we see at the end, all you got to do to beat this version of Scarecrow is just to strip him down to his shorts. Stand up to him and, yeah, get rid of the costume. And that's really it. The other factions that we deal with here are... Mikey's former gang, who are a bunch of people who defected from the cult of Black Mask that we'll be getting into in, I think, not the, not the next arc, but I believe it's the arc after that, where they take center stage in what I think is Greg Rucka's first major Batman story. Ooh. And- not to interrupt you, but uh, Matt, when are we going to read the story where Scarecrow like kills his dean? I will look into that. I will try to figure out which of the specific Scarecrow origin stories that is. I believe it is in a Batman annual that is not currently up on Comixology or Infinite. But when I figure it out, we will do it a a year one type story episode with different origins. And that will be one that we will include, I promise. All right. So I've been asking about it. Yep, 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 yep. I'm not saying I have a poor relationship with my dean, but I've had run-ins in the past with, with deans, and sometimes it might be nice if something bad happens to one of them. That's all I'm they, saying. They can't all be Dean Pelton from Community. <laughs> <laughs> so there's the, the former False Facers, and then there's Huntress. This is our first real taste of Huntress in No Man's Land. This is her protecting her own block and expanding to want to protect the art project. Because in case you haven't noticed from the various crucifix images in her costume or not from the uh, Cry for Blood where they talk about it, Huntress is a devout Catholic. I think she wears a crucifix around her neck. And at the end of Cry for Blood, she throws a crucifix into Gotham Bay. So she has a deep relationship with the church and Father Christian's associate, the other priest here, 
Father Papaleo is her confessor. So she is very invested in this particular spot amongst the, the no man's land. And the other faction that winds up coming in, which does not have the native investment that any of the others do, but winds up coming in thanks to Crane playing Father Christian is the Penguin, who gives us our MacGuffin, as you said, Will, who gives us the, the central bit that everything else is revolving around, which are a bunch of guns, crates of automatic weapons. And you've got to love how upfront uh, Cobblepot can be. Because the father comes to him and asks for supplies after Scarecrow put a bag full of rats into their food supplies. Because again, in this story, Scarecrow is the worst. And Cobblepot is like, sure, I'll give you supplies if you store a bunch of guns because nobody's going to come looking for them in your place. And the father is- Until everybody knows where they're at. Oh, right. Hey, nobody's going to think to look there. The father's like, no, I can't do it. And Penguin's like, okay, you're going to do it. And if you don't, I'm going to shoot you. And I'm just going to put them in there. But you can take the food as a gift. That is- That's a great penguin. That is exactly how I feel the penguin should be presented. Because he's he's a businessman. He's just- Ruthless. Completely ruthless. And he's doing exactly what- he feels like he needs to to make his 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 buck and if you get in his way he's just gonna shoot you but what happens here basically is crane plays everyone and he's slowly bringing everything in he's telling people about the guns he tells mikey the former false facer about the guns and tells him that what father christian really needs him to do is go to his gang and get them to come and protect the Ark Project. And he, you know, he can't do it himself because they wouldn't believe him. But trust me. And ask, ask Father Christian these exact questions, exactly as I'm telling you to. And Crane knows Father Christian well enough to know that he would answer in such a way that would give him plausible deniability. And then he tells the GCPD that Father Christian is holding the gun. He tells the false facers that there are more guns in the basement. He's slowly getting everyone to just attack the Ark Project at the same time. And he's reveling in watching society crumble. And he's completely befuddled when in the end, it doesn't. In the end, people listen to their better angels and not their worst one. Although it doesn't hurt that Father Christian gets a little help from Batman in the end. A little Batman, or a little help from Batman uh, never hurts. But yeah, it does play out strikingly similar to that that arc in Dark Knight, uh, where the the better uh, side of humanity does play out in the end. I, I do like Scarecrow's demise pre-getting his costume burned. It's basically all of these people of different faiths the same people he tried to motivate to violence, all of them say together, yeah, we'll pray for you. It, it's, it's the one time thoughts and prayers did work. <laughs> Only in a comic book. Mikey, the false facer, is a great character. This is a guy who was clearly just a poor schlub who was stuck in the no man's land and joined a gang because it was what he needed to do to survive. 
And now that he's in a better environment, he is a story of redemption. He is a guy who really wanted to make right. And then Scarecrow plays on that and gets him nearly killed. But it's his redemption. It's the fact that he was willing to do the right thing. It was the fact that he lived thanks to Batman's intervention that helps that ending come through. And also has Bruce bringing him to Leslie Tompkins and gives us a lovely scene between Bruce and Leslie. I think it's page nine of part three, where you just see them embrace and have a talk about why Leslie stayed in Gotham when she could have gotten out and them talking about the noble man that Thomas Wayne was and her saying, because Thomas would have stayed to help the city. And Bruce saying that one of the reasons he stayed is because Leslie was noble enough to stay and try to do the right thing. And again, that's part of the theme of this story. It's that good deeds lead to other good deeds. That a good person makes the world better, not just for themselves, but for others. And in a world like No Man's Land, those kind of things are important. Maybe it's the writer in me, but I don't know why there are moments of dialogue where I just, I key into little phrases and little words and just the, just the slightest note just hits me the wrong way. And I'm like, that was, that was bad or weird. And I don't like it. And it was, well, it was on this page with Tompkins. She says, talking in this conversation with Thomas, one day when I was assisting him with Gotham's endless parade of gunshot wounds, drug babies, and suicide attempts, those three things really hit me the wrong way coming together in that sentence. I did not like that. I can, I can see where you're coming from. And I think that that, I don't know if that rings true for Leslie, who is empathy incarnate. There's a few spots. I think you mentioned the other one with Huntress's neighbor who she saves from being roughed up and who, when she says, I need to bring you to the hospital, she's like, no, there are people I need to take care of in this building. And Huntress addresses them as crack addicted prostitutes. Not exactly a heroic moment. No, it is not a terribly sympathetic take on Huntress. I like this story. It's nowhere near no law in a new order. But I think the central message of it that hope perseveres in even the darkest times is generally a pretty important story. And seeing someone play with it the way Crane does, play with fear and hate, makes the fact that in the end, everyone comes around to the right choice better. Yeah, and you could easily write a story that would be dark and you know, see this just end in so much bloodshed, but this is, this is a better note. It reminds me in a lot of ways of the end of the Batman, you know, where people come together, where Batman becomes a symbol of hope rather than of, of darkness and vengeance. And it doesn't make maybe all of the right choices that we would consider to be the right choices in 2022, but it gets there in the end. And it ends on a cool little epilogue that just sets up bits of No Man's Land moving forward where we see one of Batman's micro caves and where it exists. And it's this final pullback where it's like, oh yeah, Batman, of course, has a hidey hole right under Arkham. 
he's there all the time, Matt. It makes perfect sense. And it will make even more sense after a story we're going to read next week. But you'll find out more about that at the end of the episode. Ooh. As we often are, we're both story guys and tend to give art unless it's particularly great or particularly poor. We'll start off the next discussion with art, by the way. Yeah. Dale Eaglesham is another really solid superhero artist. I like Dale Eaglesham's work a lot. And here he does great action. He does great character interaction. The faces, pained expression on Father Christian or the hopeful expression on Father Christian, the terrified look on Scarecrow as his costume burns at the end. His characters are all a bit super buff, or at least his male characters tend to be like really big. But when you're generally drawing superhero comics, there are worse sins than that. Absolutely. I'm good. You got anything else? I got one last thing. Okay. We should have a chat with uh, with Devin Grayson about better ways to make bullets than to go harvesting slugs out of dead bodies. You could literally melt down like anything else and you would you'd get more metal than that. It seems like more product for less work or just still go hunt for bullets. You guys aren't going to be able to make your own bullets. That's real dumb. Real, real dumb. But they're goons, so maybe it's supposed to be dumb. I, I was kind of thinking along those lines, like, these guys aren't too bright. I think this is intentionally, like, these guys are going about this the dumbest way possible. I needed some pushback on that then. I needed somebody to pop in there and say, you guys are harvesting slugs. you got to make your own bullets. It's the stupidest fucking thing I've ever heard. I, I would have gotten a kick out of that. Bruce just basically rolling his eyes at these idiots. Sure. Dig in corpses if you want. Got nothing else to do. It'll keep you busy. I'd say keep your noses clean, but these guys don't smell too good. Ha! And with that, it's time to put fear of faith on the big board. Okay. So I think we can firmly say not better than no law on a new one. Nah, that's at 30. That's yeah. some that's some rarefied air. That, that's that's pretty high. But I'm I'm thinking middle maybe upper middle uh see the middle at this point would be above 70 i think that works for me yeah it's getting hard it is getting hard you've read a lot of stories and there's a lot of good stories i don't think this cracks the top 50 uh no uh, oh man, Thrill Killer is about to slide out of the top 50. That's rough. Not today. Not today. <laughs> no. Other Scarecrow stories. I think I like Fear for Sale, the one where Batman's greatest fear is the death of Jason Todd. Uh huh. 59 more. I think that's one issue in and out, quick punch, has some great Batman to it is another clever use of Scarecrow's fear motif. So I I think this goes below that. How do you feel about it in relation to universe, the Bendis story? God, I I was just about to ask you that. You know, it's one we took up recently and it made such a zero impression on my brain. Like I could not, I couldn't tell you what it's about right now. I know it's Bendis, so there's a lot of talking. It's um, the, the White Lantern Ring, Vandal Savage, 
Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Batman gets a power ring at the very end of the book. Yes. The proto power ring. I think that book should have been more fun. This was not necessarily fun, but it it wasn't aiming to be either. True. Probably above universe. I think if it's going to go above universe, it's going to go right above universe. Because above that is the post-crisis origin of Jason Todd, which is more important. And Max Allen Collins does a great job of building a memorable Jason Todd in that story. Both the characters of Father Christian and Mikey are fine characters, but neither of them are characters that either stuck in the mythos or really are much more beyond an archetype. The man of faith who has too much faith and the guy seeking redemption. Jason, as introduced in that post-crisis origin, is a much more nuanced character. And I think 65 is a good spot for this. Yes, I agree. So 65, Fear of Faith. And our final story of the afternoon is Injustice, Gods Among Us, Year One, Volume Two. This is Injustice, Gods Among Us, numbers 7 to 12, and annual number one. The writer is Tom Taylor. Pencils by Tom Derenick, Neil Gouge, Kevin McGuire, Mike S. Miller, Bruno Redondo, Jeremy Rapak, and Zeramonico. Inks by all of the above and Jonas Trindade. Colors by Rosemary Cheatham, Alejandro Sanchez, David Lopez, Santi Casas, Sergi Era, and Fran Vasquez. Letters by Wes Abbott and edited by Jim Chadwick and Sarah Gatos. Cover dates are September of 2013 through February of 2014. Superman's Justice League continues to slowly roll out its control over the world while Batman's resistance plans to stop them. An increasingly unstable Superman is pushed closer to the edge. And when he crosses the line, what is there that can stop him? All right. So I said that we were going to open up this discussion with the art. And I know I know it's hard. I know it's hard putting out this book came out digitally, came out weekly. I know you got you to make the trains run on time. When this book is is good, it's good. It's absolutely fine. And, and a lot of this is going to echo uh, our first volume discussion. The problems we see here are, I think, to my to my eyes, are just amplified. But when it's when it's good, it's perfectly good. When it's bad, it's absolutely wretched. I think there are moments in this book where I have seen the worst inking, the worst pencils, and the worst coloring of any major big two comic book. And we've, we've seen bad art in, uh, in, our, in our run on Bat Chat parentheses print edition. There are some moments in this volume where if I was DC, I would just be ashamed to put it out. I would be ashamed to put my brand on this book, especially when we get in the middle and the coloring gets so washed out. If I was, if I was reading from a print copy, I would be like, who the fuck left this out in the sun for a month? It's, it's so awful. I don't understand how it can be this awful from Detective Comics Comics. I don't understand. I think you said train's got to run on time. Not a single night scene. It all looks like day shot or night shot for day. I don't get... And there, the thing that kills me is there are some great artists in here. Kevin McGuire and Bruno Redondo are excellent artists. Tom Derenick is one of those workhorse superhero artists who has done a million different books over the years. 
there's less said about some of this, the better, but I don't get it. And to my eye, obviously, we, we haven't had the, the talk with the unknowable mind of DC editorial. Some of this is just work by fill-in artists and they are, they're not up to it. They're really not. And I wish they were. <laughs> I wish they were further along in their careers when they got this job to work on, you know, a superhero property. But this just, some of this is, like I keep saying, it's so bad. I wish this was, you know, one of those fancy YouTube podcasts where I could just, I could pull up some of these pages that are just so washed out. The faces are just so wrong and just, God. What I'm telling you, people, is this bad. It's real bad art. Oh, and I, I did forget Problematic Creator Watch. One of those artists, Mike S. Miller, Comicsgate, does not, work, does not work in the mainstream anymore. Because although I think he's also been kicked out of Comicsgate at this point. Like, I think he's made enemies of everyone. So, yeah, I don't think he's actually redeemed himself in the eyes of, you know, anyone by actually being a better person. I just think he pissed off Comicsgate, too. But yeah, problematic creator watch right there. Moving on to the story. When discussing Tom Taylor comics, there is a fairly vocal contingent of people who dislike Tom Taylor comics because of how gosh darn golly gee black and white Tom Taylor's morality is in comic books. And while that does not work in some books when dealing with nuanced social issues as he tries to do in Nightwing and in Superman Son of Kal-El, here where it's really about Superman and the rise of fascism, I think this is where his black and white morality works a little better because there, yeah, there isn't a black, anything shades of gray with someone who wants to take over the world, even if he thinks it's for the the greater good. Superman is in the wrong here. Superman and Wonder Woman are villains in this story quite clearly. Batman isn't always doing everything the right way. He absolutely is being difficult and is keeping people in the dark, which isn't right. But when push comes to shove, he's right here. Clark is absolutely crossing lines, even before he crosses the big line about halfway through this vlog. Uh, and then an even bigger line toward the end. Mm -hmm. There are two moments, by the way, that gave me an absolute chuckle because it's like, boy... We, we joked about when we did the first volume, how many beats this borrows from that Armageddon 2001 annual of Superman that we did in the same episode. Uh, this one, A, borrows a beat there too, because that line that he crosses, yeah, uh, he kills Martian Manhunter again. Only this one, it's more active, like it's flat out murder. Like he just kills him. But there's also a scene at the beginning where Luthor, who, because he's freaking Lex Luthor, of course he did, had a lead line bunker beneath LexCorp Tower. And a speedster on the payroll. Which is weird that it was Jesse Quick, of all characters, who runs her own company and is wealthy herself. But meh. When he does this thing where he points at each member of the Justice League and rattles off their secret identities that he's secretly known all along, that is a beat-for-beat -beat moment from an episode of Justice League. 
the the series slash season finale, the final episode of Justice League before it became Justice League Unlimited. Thanagarians have invaded Earth and the League has escaped them, but they're still in costume. And Batman's like, you have to disguise ourselves. And Flash's like, oh, I don't know. I'm not necessarily ready. And Batman just looks at them. Clark Kent, Wally West, Jon Stewart, Bruce Wayne. It's right out of that. And I have to imagine it was an homage because it's so right out of that episode. Here, I have a question. Yes. When I started reading this, this felt like a possible future story from a fairly straight ahead version of the DC universe. Did it seem the same to you? Like this was a few years in the future kind of thing. Uh, yeah, this is not some science fiction-y type story aside from the, the super pills that we'll talk about. But what befuddled me is in this version of the universe, Lex and Superman are friends. They were friends. That, for everything else, seeming to be pretty much how I know the DC universe, that one kind of struck me as coming out of left field. I guess when I read this the first time, I just accepted it. And <gasps> it is a little weird going back to it, especially when the when the Kents are like, oh, yeah, we, we're glad you have a little friend to, to talk to now. Yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily a, a bad thing, but it just threw me because everything else seemed so much of what I would expect that that was just like, okay. As with all of the, at least with the other half that we saw as well, this is really all over the place because of the digital chapter nature of it. There's a lot of sides. There's a lot of things that come and go and you get interruptions in the middle of plots with these one-offs that are there to do more to do with theme than with plot. Mm, like uh, Harley and Lobos? Yep. That one is the annual. So I have to imagine that that was intentionally written to stand on its own. But the opening chapter, which is a Billy Batson interviewing people about what they feel about the superheroes, which is the one that has the Kevin Maguire art. So it seems very removed. And there's one... It's, I think, at the end of issue 10, which is just the story of this kid who Superman helped at one point or another. I see. I thought that was the annual. It seems so disconnected. No, no. It's the Lobo one that's the annual. That story is just, I think, the back half of issue 10. And it's all about theme. It doesn't do anything for plot. It's just this kid who remembers what it was like when Superman was a real hero and tells the story of Superman, you know, picking him up after he bent his bike wheel and Superman just being a mensch. And then yeah, it's, it's not a bad story. It's, it's a great story. It's a, it would have been great in that uh, Superman red and blue anthology. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it was that kind of story about how great Superman is, but here it's just like, boy sucks that Superman sucks now. <laughs> and it, it, it's, it sucks that Dave Chappelle sucks now. It's that whole question of, can you enjoy the art of an artist that you liked before you realized or they revealed that they sucked? Or is it now all just fruit of the poison tree and you have to just, you know, let it go? And they're slowly making their brand. Oh, hey, I suck. But okay, I'm circling back to, to this particular comic. The back half of this is when the plot 
seriously kicks in. With, oh, does it ever. With the super pill that they come up with, this pill to grant people superpowers, which I love that that is basically there to explain how in the video game, Batman can go toe to toe with Superman and it makes sense. But this, the super pill does lead to some really great moments uh, eventually in the series. I don't remember when it comes up, but at one point, Renee Montoya smacks the shit out of Superman with a Washington monument. Okay, I love that. <laughs> but I don't think any moment is going to top the end of this volume, where after Superman flat out pulls a bane and snaps Batman's back over his knee, and then starts to torture him before Bruce calls him out and says, you know, oh, now you're resorting to torture, are you? And Superman kind of freezes up. Alfred just pounds the crap out of Clark. You're going to knock this shit off, sir. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. Because it's like, you're not going to hurt this family anymore. And Alfred just smacks him around. Again, we got some fun story beats in this book and they are sometimes dark, sometimes zany, you know, Harley riding uh, Lobo's bike. That's, that's fucking fun. Right. Uh, The interaction with Harley and green arrow and black canary, all of that stuff is good, but just like the first volume, it is so visually inconsistent. It is such a mess. The moment where Taylor sort of takes a dig at dark Knight returns Batman, like, what did you expect me to do? Put on a suit of armor and fight you? <laughs> that wouldn't work. And the other moment when, Super, when Superman really crosses the line, the resistance had broken into the Fortress of Solitude to steal the super pill. And they find Jonathan and Martha. And Bruce is like, okay, we've got to go. We've got to go now. G- got to get the fuck out. Get the fuck out. Everybody out. And, you know, Superman shows up. And it winds up coming down to Green Arrow fighting Superman. And Ollie is just firing arrows at him. And eventually he follows, fires one that misses and, and starts like, you miss. And like, oh, did I? And he had shot the super pill out of the Fortress of Solitude for Batman to find. And then one of his ricochets hits Jonathan Kent. And it's like, oh, no. And Superman beats him to death with his bare hands. But there's this moment as Ollie's vision is fading to black. He just sees this vision of, of Black Canary. and She was the most beautiful woman in the world. I wish we had more time, pretty bird. And it's like, okay, I'll admit, that one got me a little. And then Ma Kent immediately pulls him after, after she takes a super pill. And she says, it was the only way I could get you to stop. Could you not have done that like a minute or two earlier before Green Arrow had been beaten to death? Let's be fair. From in Ma's case, I don't think Ma really thought he would do it. One punch from an unarmored Green Arrow by Superman, he's not making it back from that. He was dead after the first blow. Well, then you should just let the boy have his fun, work out all of his rage. <laughs> on poor Green Arrow. And we also find out in this one that there is a mole in Superman's camp. And since I haven't read the rest of the series, I don't know who it is. I have my suspicion that about who it is, but I don't know for a fact that it's Lex Luthor, but uh, <laughs> let's be fair. It, it's, it's going to be Lex because of course the, 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 those two are not meant to be friends. So this, this story goes all the way up to year five. 
Uh, and then there are some sequels and follow-ups after that. I don't remember at what point I stopped reading. I do remember some of the threads that are continued from this first year. Uh, and I won't spoil any of them. I think I think there's more interesting story to come. And I have to believe that the art's going to get better. This cannot continue to be this inconsistent. And when it's at its worst, just so awful. And once again, we have a Damien who looks like Tim Drake at, at multiple points. At multiple points, I'm like, wait, why is Tim here? Oh, that's Damien who looks like he's 17. And their size for Damien looks like he's 13, like he's supposed to. Or at least I assume, I guess this is the near future, but still. We haven't anywhere near discussed all of the plot beats here. We haven't talked about the invasion from Apocalypse. We haven't talked about Jean impersonating Hawkgirl. But because of the structure of this book, there is so much going on that you can't discuss everything. Oh, that was the other one that it was like, oh, wow. Yeah, Tom Taylor, you completely borrowed that beat, didn't you? Wonder Woman invades a, or I guess invades, a refugee camp in Mogadishu that is being held by a warlord and his men. And she makes them, well, well, first she pops the warlord's head like a grape, but then she makes the guys, the men disarm and gives the firearms to the women. Wait, that's that scene from New Frontier, only we're watching it happen versus just seeing the aftermath of it and a bit of it told in flashback. I don't have the same problems a lot of people have with Tom Taylor, but yeah, Tom Taylor, don't crib Darwin Cook. Darwin Cook did it better. <laughs> <laughs> don't crib a lot of the stuff you're cribbing because, you know, Justice League Starcross did it better. I hope that at some point it's explained why Diana is acting this way, that there's a reason behind it versus her just being this character because it is so out of character with every other iteration of Wonder Woman. She just thinks Superman is right. Oh boy, I don't like that. Got anything else? I don't think so. And that means it's time to put Injustice Volume 2 on the big board. All right, so Injustice Volume 1 is at 82. The art is on the same level here, so we're not going to be able to make this one wind up any higher or lower because of the art. So the question is, how does the story stand up versus the first volume? You cannot beat Superman punching Joker through the chest. Like that is one defining moment from Injustice number one that you can't top. I like Alfred punching the hell out of Superman. I really, really get a kick out of Alfred, Alfred Pennyworth, loyal retainer. Generally, I don't like an action Alfred, but, you know, when he's just watched Superman cripple Batman, him taking that pill and just wailing on him, because this isn't, you know, Alfred the spy. Alfred, no, this is Alfred the father. A- after Damien has already wailed on Alfred. That is true, right? We didn't mention that scene where Damien shows up to try to make peace and Damien had taken the super pill and just didn't know his own strength. So he shoved Alfred. It was like, ooh, that's bad. That's not going to end well for anyone involved. But you're, you're thinking that this goes below volume one. I think so. But, you know, not much farther below because they are, they are about the same. I really wish we could go back in time and tell DC, hey, 
uh, this thing is really going to sell. People are going to love it. You know, you're going to make you know the uh, animated adaptation. The video game is going to sell like crazy. Uh, you should probably get better art for this. Okay, if that's the case, because I can see you know, Volume One is is more foundational. It does have some. Aside from that Green Arrow moment and the Alfred moment, there isn't a ton, as much heart in this one. The first one, like all the stuff they do with Clark and his pathos, the death of Lois and the destructive problems is more. The apocalypse invasion just seems like a, a side plot to just kind of scare all of our big bad superheroes. Just it's one more beat on the road to fascism. It's not anything interesting in, in and of itself. All right, so let's we're gonna go a few spots lower then because again, I think I'd read Clown at Midnight again before I read this because again, Clown at Midnight is fascinating. I would read Blades again first, but I leave this now. My shenanigans this week have forced you to move your schedule, you're taking time out on your weekend to uh, to help my dumbass. Let's say the new 88. Below Blades and above Batman, Death and the Maidens. I can go with that. I mean, I, I would have even been willing if you'd been willing to say above a below Death and the Maidens. But I think Injustice Volume 2 there makes sense. I am curious to see what happens when we get back to this with the first volume of year two. I think that might be the year of magic. The year of magic and then like the year of the Greek heroes. Or maybe oh. I'm getting those reversed. We'll find out. I know at some point Constantine becomes a major character. Always can go for some some John C. So that's it for this week. Next week, well, the hits keep coming as we pay tribute to another recently departed Batman legend with three stories by Alan Grant drawn by his frequent collaborator, Norm Bray Fogel. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, June, conduit of outdated joke names, Joshua Joshua Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum, <laughs> Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Sam Hopper, Christian Smith, and John Wickham for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show's available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good afternoon, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat books, for my other show, WMQ&A, for my longtime best friend, Dan Grote, and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.